Let's dive in to God's word. But before we do, I want to just talk to you a little bit about Notre Dame. Notre Dame is one of my favorite man-made structures in the world. I got to go see it in November of 2008 with a friend of mine. We were going to visit my sister uh, that was living in Denmark at the time. And on our way, we stopped for a few days in Paris and a few days in London to get to see what was there. Now, my friend is a big Disney buff, loves Disney. And so most of our time in Paris was actually spent in Disneyland Paris. But we had one day where we got to hop on a bus and drive around through the city. I remember as we were on the bus, I even asked him, like, are we going to come back to the actual city of Paris? And he said, nope, this is the one day. So I tried to make the most of it and busted out my, my little uh, digital camera and was taking pictures. And, and I took this picture of Notre Dame as, as I was driving through. Now, we literally drove by, and I was there snapping pictures. And for some people, that's good enough. Yep, I saw Notre Dame. I drove by. I took pictures. Let me show you. But that wasn't enough for me. So after we finished our bus tour, which took us to about 6 p.m., we ended up at the Eiffel Tower. We, we went up in it, and uh, we, we went to go get back on the bus. And, and my friend was like, great, like we're headed back to the hotel. And I said, you know, I haven't had enough. So I'm going to stay put in Paris and explore a little bit more. And so I did. I asked for a map from the bus driver. I had no French. I, had, I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have any phone at all at the time. Uh, my, my camera battery was dead. And I, and I had just a, a few bucks in my pocket. And I walked down the Champs-Élysées from the Eiffel Tower to the Arc de Triomphe and, and, and got to watch the changing of the guard there. And then I hopped on the metro and found my way over to Notre Dame. And I walked up out of the, the metro tunnel, and, and there it was in all of its splendor and glory. And I got to walk all the way around it, being right there. And for some people, that would have been enough. But it wasn't enough for me. I walked up to a guard that I saw standing uh, right at an entrance, and I saw a sign, and thankfully it was in English so I could read it, and the sign simply said, closed to the public. But being me, uh, that wasn't enough, and so I walked up to the guard and I said, look, I'm from the U.S. I don't get out here often. Is there any way you could let me inside? And he kind of looked around, didn't see anyone else watching my conversation with him. He's like, yeah, go ahead, go on inside. And so I got to go inside of Notre Dame and look around at all of the beauty and majesty inside. And while I was doing that, they were wrapping up a church service in there. And so I got to watch the tail end of a church service in Notre Dame. And as I walked out, the church service ended and we all uh, walked out of the building. Off go the bells. The bells were singing and it was an amazing experience. Absolutely amazing. See, I pressed and I pressed and I pressed and I got to see something greater. 
But there's something even greater about Notre Dame that most people miss. The site where Notre Dame was built was uh, likely a Roman temple to the god Jupiter until Christianity came to France around the second second ah, second century. Then the temple was torn down and a church was put in its place. And there were four different churches there uh, before Notre Dame was built. And Notre Dame's construction went from 1160 to 1260. Can you imagine being a part of a church building campaign that took a hundred years to construct? Yikes! Uh, but, it, but it was finally finished in 1260. Now here's the thing. Notre Dame is there at its core to point people to Jesus. People show up to see a beautiful building with lots of history, but don't know the God that is worshipped there. One of the questions from last week was, why do most people then and now miss the glory of Jesus? And in our passage today, once again, we have people seeing what's happening right in front of them and missing the glory. Missing the something greater that is right in front of them. Don't miss the something greater that is right in front of you. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. Don't get wrapped up in the Notre Dame story and miss the point of the story. That so many miss out on the something greater. What they see right in front of them is enough. Don't let it be enough for you. Let's dive in to our passage this morning. Uh, we are uh, working through our series on Luke. We're, we're in Luke 23. And this morning we're starting in verse 26. And wherever you are, uh, I would invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say that the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Let's pray. God, these are your words. This is your message to us. We've got your words staring at us in the face. And yet oftentimes we settle for something so far less. We do a quick skim through and that's, yeah, that's good enough. But God, you have something greater for us. So this morning, God, I pray against any distraction, anything that's pulling people away from hearing what you have to hear for them. God, remove those distractions and let them be attentive to you. Let each man, each woman that is listening right now be dialed in, not to my words, but to your words. Not to my voice, but to your voice. That's the voice we need speaking, shouting loudly to us this morning. God, help us to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now first, from this passage, we are told to do something greater. In verse 26, we're introduced to Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he was, shocker, right? Ready? He was from Cyrene. Now, let me show you, because I know some of you like maps. Let me show you where Cyrene was. It's a town that no longer exists, um, but here's where it was. It's in present-day uh, Libya, so way, way, way west of, of Egypt, of the Mediterranean. It's really far from Jerusalem where all of this was taking place. This is uh, in, in Luke's gospel. We are in Jerusalem right now, and so this is where Cyrene was. Now, Cyrene is also mentioned a few times in Acts where we learn that there were other believers there and that there was also a synagogue there. So, from this, we learn that Simon may have been Jewish, and we know that he was either visiting Jerusalem or that he had moved there from Cyrene. We don't know which it was. Now, from Mark's account, we learn that uh, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. But both from this account and Mark's account, we learn that he was coming in from the country. He wasn't a part of the angry crowd that demanded Jesus be crucified. So taking all these pieces, we can put together a rough picture of Simon. He's a dad. He's coming in from the country. Maybe he was working. Maybe he was hanging out with his boys. Maybe he was playing disc golf. Nah, probably not. (laughs) Maybe he was exploring the area on a family vacation. But he was probably not aware of what had happened through Jesus' trial. He may not even have been aware of who Jesus was at all. But in a moment, Simon is thrust right into the middle of the most pivotal event in all of human history. Simon's told to do something he doesn't want to do. 
He has no option in this. And in doing this, we learn some things from him, from this experience. First, Luke is showing us with physical representation what it means to take up your cross. And this is something that Jesus has talked about multiple times. In Luke 9, 23, it says, And he said to all, everyone that was listening, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And in Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So in this moment, Simon is denying himself. Simon is following Jesus, coming after Jesus. It's difficult, but it's what he has to do. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's denying yourself. It's difficult. Now, second, we see the benefit. Yes, the benefit of taking up your cross. Simon is thrust into the middle of the most pivotal event in all of human history. And in that moment, he gets to be a part of the most pivotal event in all of human history. How many times have you been frustrated, tired, sorrowful, angry, hurt, or something else along those lines as you're thrust into doing something for God that you don't want to do? But then how often do you stop and look back at the part you got to play in God's greater story? Instead of letting the emotions of the situation dictate your perspective, take a moment and ask God for his perspective. Ask him to help you be faithful, trusting that you are getting to be a part of a greater story. So learn from Simon. Walk into the difficult things God has asked you to do or told you to do, knowing that you are being brought into something greater. Next, we see that we need to understand something greater. Understand something greater. The women and the crowds in this passage had a misunderstanding of what was happening. But this is indicative of the fickle crowd. Walk with me through the changes in the crowd. If we go all the way back to Luke 22, 47, we see this this crowd first pop up. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, there came a crowd. So there was more than just the people that were there to arrest him. There was a crowd around. And in verse 54, we see that the crowd, they seized him and led him away and took him to the high priest. And then in chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Uh, There, before Pilate, they accused Jesus. They, They start to get urgent. And in verse 13, it says that Pilate calls them all together to try to release Jesus. He's talking to a big group of people. Verse 18, it says that they all cried out together. Verse 21, it says they kept shouting. 
And in verse 23, which we looked at last week, it says, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. This loud crowd was here and very antagonistic towards Jesus. But then here in our passage in verse 27, it says a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, did, was, were there people from this same group that were just convicted? Or was this a totally different group? We're not sure. We don't know. But you see a shift happening in how people are interacting with Jesus. We also see in verse 35, which is also in our passage, the people stood by watching. So this crowd is is still there, like watching everything come to fruition. And then in verse 48, which we'll get to next week, it says, And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. It took the crowds a long time to get it. And when they left, it's likely that most of them didn't really understand all of what just happened. They didn't understand all of what was going on. And neither did the women. But in this conversation that's unique to Luke, Jesus stops to try to help them understand. Which is a big deal given his physical state. We have to remember that Jesus was beaten, and this beating, this flogging that happens, tears flesh off. There's a ton of loss of blood. It's absolutely brutal. But Jesus stops, and he cares deeply for these women. Let's look at what he says to them. It says in verse 27 that they were mourning and lamenting for him. Because as far as they understood, death was the end. All their hopes were dashed. Their supposed savior had been defeated. And Jesus reacts with love. He then diverts their weeping from him to themselves. We see his love in him calling them daughters of Jerusalem. An enduring, an endearing term showing his deep love for them. And the phrase, turning to them, is a call back to Jesus' interaction with Peter after Peter denies Jesus. In chapter twenty-two, fifty-one, it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It was an act of loving correction, just like this is. But here he's telling them that their weeping is misdirected. That they need to weep over themselves and over Jerusalem in the same way that Jesus did. Remember in chapter 19, it says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, why should they be weeping for themselves and for Jerusalem? Well, Jesus tells them. He says, because destruction is coming. Hard times are coming. It says that they will bless those who have no children. It will be so bad that nobody will want their kids to live through it. Man, I wish we had never had kids at all because this is so awful. Verse 30 is a quoting of Hosea 
It says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. Now it could be read as, as a suicidal wish. Let us be crushed by the mountains and hills. But I don't think that's the point of this phrase. This, this kind of phrasing is used a few different times in Scripture. And most of the other times, uh, it's, it's used uh, as the mountains and hills being looked to for protection or to hide the people. So I think that's what's being said here. Uh, fall on us, cover us, protect us from this destruction that's coming. But whichever way Jesus meant, meant it, it doesn't bode well for them. Verse 31 also points to a difficult time ahead. It says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, there are many interpretations of this proverb, but the one that makes the most sense to me is this. If you Jews did this to Jesus when he came to save you, what do you think will happen when he comes back to judge you? Another possible interpretation is, uh, if the Romans would beat, mock, and crucify an innocent man, what will they do to you, Jews, that aren't innocent? Now, either interpretation points to the impending destruction and judgment of Jerusalem, which Jesus has talked about so many other times in chapters 13, 19, and 21. Okay, so they're weeping because destruction is coming. Now, it, and that's what Jesus is pointing them to. But is that the entirety of what Jesus wants them to understand? No, it's not. What's more important is why this destruction is coming. It's coming because they didn't understand why Jesus came. In chapter 19, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he weeps because of the destruction that's coming. And then he says, this is coming because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, they didn't understand why Jesus was there. Their hope was in someone that would release them from their Roman oppression. And so Jesus was desiring to point them to understand something greater. To go beyond their limited understanding and trust that something bigger was happening. Now the story wasn't over for them. Of course, they had the opportunity to be redeemed. To be saved. Which is why Jesus stopped to engage with them. To help them shift their thinking and understand something greater. They were doomed to destruction, and their salvation was staring them right in the face. And just like people miss out on the Savior that Notre Dame was built to worship, these people missed out on something greater because they wanted to see a few miracles and the fall of Roman rule. Ultimately, that something greater that they needed to understand was talking right to them. The something greater was someone greater. Jesus is that someone greater. Again in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Jesus is someone greater than they understood. He is greater than we often understand. I want to draw your attention to three ways this is pointed out in the passage. First, it's important to remember what price was paid for your salvation. How much it cost to cover your sin. Dave mentioned it's easy just to kind of gloss over because we've heard it so many times before. But also, this was ugly. We often like to skip over this because of how ugly it was. Now we know the happy ending. Why why do we need to talk about the bad part? Because the happy ending would never have happened without the bad part. You and I would not be free from our sin had Christ not suffered crucifixion. Now, though Luke doesn't get into it too much, we know from historians how bloody a crucifixion was. Many criminals didn't even make it to the cross. They couldn't survive the severity of the beatings that happened before. So it's no wonder that they brought someone in to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus probably couldn't carry it himself. In our passage, it simply says they crucified him. What that means is they drove nails through his wrists and through his feet. Where every breath on the cross was pure torture. Where he was left until he couldn't stand the pain anymore, let his body slump over and die from suffocation. There's many more details uh, if you want to read the case for Christ that, that gets into it more. Now, to endure all of this as an innocent man, that is someone greater than they could understand. Greater than we could often comprehend or dwell on. I have uh, in your community group's questions, uh, in the plan of action, a question where it calls you just to stop and reflect on what it cost. And there's another plan of action question that gets into Forgiveness, which is the next thing we're going to talk about right now. Because the second thing I wanted to point out is that Jesus was there to forgive. And he said so twice. Now, Dave will get into one of these times next week. The the thief on the cross and, and Jesus ushering him in to paradise. But that interaction and verse 34 in our passage today are both unique to Luke. Verse 34 says... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Luke is making a point here that we need to see that Jesus was here to forgive. That his death on the cross was about forgiveness. Luke's purpose in writing his book was to give his readers certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's chapter 1, verse 4. This gives certainty as to why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on the cross for you. 
Jesus came to forgive you. You deserve this punishment. I deserve this punishment. And Jesus took your place. Jesus took my place. I truly believe that when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, that he wasn't just talking about the people right in front of him. (laughs) That he had me on his mind. That he had you on his mind. He was there to forgive This simple concept has radically changed my life. And I know for many of you, it has radically changed your life. But if Jesus forgiving you hasn't changed your life, I encourage you to ask yourself, why not? Do you recognize you need forgiveness? Do you feel lost or empty? If you're not there yet, that's okay. But I pray that God will help you see that on your own. That on your own, you're lost. You need a savior. And Jesus is the only one who can extend forgiveness to you. The only one who can save you. Look in this passage how he extended forgiveness to those right in front of him. As he's in excruciating pain, fighting for every breath, he takes time to speak forgiveness out loud to those who are crucifying him, those who are causing him pain. I imagine him as he's being nailed to the cross, turning and looking at the guy that's driving the nail in, looking at him with love because he loved that man. What's more, he shows his heart for them. Just the same as the woman he turned to talk with. Just as the women didn't understand. So these men didn't understand what was going on. They didn't know the greater story unfolding right in front of them. And how much greater Jesus was than they realized. Now third, Jesus is someone greater because he is the king. They just didn't understand what kind of king they needed. What kind of king he is. See, people were wrestling with the question, is he a king? Is he the savior the angels came and, and said that he was? Remember in Luke 2.11, it says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. But is that who he is? Some merely saw this Jesus As a criminal, while he's being crucified with two other criminals, he must be a criminal too. Some stood by watching, as we see in verse 35. But the Jewish rulers and the Roman soldiers aligned themselves, these two groups that have been at odds, they aligned themselves and mocked Jesus, saying the same thing. If you're the king, if you're this chosen one of God, save yourself. See, they caught that his royal status and role as savior are interconnected. That the king should be able to save. And because he wasn't saving himself, they made fun of him. They laughed at him. 
At one point, sour wine is often, and that even was done as a mockery. It's a reference to Psalm 69, 21. It says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. See, to offer sour wine to a king was dishonorable because the king deserved good wine. But even worse, some studies of ancient history have shown that this very well could have been offered to him via a sponge on a stick. And this sponge stick contraption was often used during that time as a tool to clean yourself after using the restroom. So it's basically similar to taking a a wad of toilet paper, used toilet paper, and then dipping it in sour wine and putting it on a stick and saying, here, Jesus, drink this. This was mocking. And they hurl these insults at him. And it shows Jesus' greatness that he stayed on that cross. Anytime people mock me and I'm in a position of power, I don't hesitate to take an opportunity to show them up. But Jesus didn't. And in staying on the cross, he was responding to their mocking in a way they didn't understand. See, they thought his crucifixion proved that he was not the Messiah. Not the Savior, not the King. When in reality, watch this, when in reality, his crucifixion proved that he is. Let me say that again. They thought his crucifixion proved that he was not the Messiah, not the Savior, not the King. When in reality, his crucifixion proved that he is. See, the fact that he's the king means that this must happen, that he must suffer, which is why he stayed on that cross. In fact, he told his disciples that this was coming multiple times. Luke 9, 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 17, 25, but first he must suffer these things and be rejected by this generation. In chapter 18, Jesus takes the 12 and says to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets, in other words, you should have been paying attention to your scripture, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The disciples didn't understand. They didn't see that he was someone greater. Again, The Jewish rulers thought that his crucifixion proved that he was not the Messiah, not the Savior, not the King, when in reality, his crucifixion proved that he is. No, Jesus didn't tell them that he was going to be crucified, but they should have known. They should have read their scripture more carefully. Psalm 22, which all of these Jewish leaders knew well. 
It says, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots, which is mentioned in this passage. Psalm 109, it says, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. And then in Isaiah 53, It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them. Every single one of these scriptures pointed to this man. On this cross, right in front of them, and they didn't get it. They didn't see that someone greater than they could have ever imagined, the very someone they had been waiting for, was right in front of them. All they had to do was read the sign. All they had to do was read the sign. (laughs) This is the king of of the Jews. In Romans 5 it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get it? Do you see? 
People interpreted this phrase in different ways. This is the king of the Jews. Some saw it to be a bold-faced lie or a joke. Some saw it as a failed coup led by an unsuccessful zealot. Most didn't understand what this really meant. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He came to be the savior that they needed. He came to lead them in the direction they needed to go. And he came to show them that this salvation wasn't limited to one people group. It's available to all. It's available to you. Friends, Jesus suffered the pain and ridicule on that cross for you. He died to take a punishment that you deserve, a punishment that I deserve. That's what a king does. He steps in for the sake of his people. Have you given your life over to him? Have you accepted his gift of salvation? If not, today is the day. I would encourage you, if you haven't accepted this, to pray this prayer along with me as I pray it out loud. Lord, I am a sinner. On my own, I deserve death. I deserve separation from you. But I accept your gift of forgiveness. I accept the gift of salvation. I recognize that you took my place. And I thank you for that. I accept your gift. And I give my life over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today for the first time, The angels in heaven are rejoicing. And we're rejoicing too. Tell someone that you prayed that prayer. Write us a note. Put a comment in on the video. Just let us know that you gave your life over to Jesus. Now for those of you that have given your life over to Jesus, don't forget or become complacent with the greatness of Of your Savior. Remember that He is the King of the Jews. His sacrifice on the cross proves it. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the King that we didn't deserve, but the King that we need. Thank you for stepping in and taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could be free, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could understand who you are. God, help us to not be complacent. Help us not say, ah, this is good enough. But let us pursue the something greater. Let us pursue the someone greater. Let us recognize that there is nothing greater than the name of Jesus, the name that every knee will bow down to, that every tongue will confess that you are Lord. There's nothing better and there's nothing greater. 
And for that, we celebrate you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.